0: This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. The United Nations International Day of People with Disability has a long-esteemed history, celebrating understanding and acceptance of people with a disability around the world for almost three decades. It's a day to honour the benefits of an inclusive and accessible society for all. The Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities is a key touchstone moment for disability rights, as it's a historic and comprehensive, legally binding international treaty that Australia was pivotal in developing. The CRPD, as it's become known, came into force in 2008. Today, on the Gender Card, our guests examine how far we have come and how much more there is to achieve for disability rights in Australia. Lawyer and marathon runner Henry McPhillamy brings insights from his own lived experience as a person who is blind to the panel. Eloise Hurrell is a research fellow at the Hopkins Centre at the Menzies Health Institute of Queensland, who is researching disability and rehabilitation, particularly how the National Disability Insurance Scheme is moving away from the key principles of the CRPD. And we are also joined today by internationally renowned researcher and Senior Policy Officer for People with Disability Australia, Francis Kwan Ferrand. Thank you all, Eloise, Henry and Francis, for joining us on the Gender Card. Thanks, Nance. Thanks for having us here. It's wonderful to have such a diverse group of people for our special episode on International Day of People with Disability. This is a, such an important day in the calendar, isn't it, Eloise? What do you think of when you come around to International Day of People with Disability? Is it... A day of celebration, or is it you're just conscious of how much there is still to achieve, essentially?
1: Nance, I think you've touched on two elements of, of what International Day of People with Disability means to me. And yes, on, on one level, it's certainly time for acknowledgement, a time for prioritising inclusiveness, thinking and reflecting on how inclusive our society is of people with disability. Also the what else needs to happen so that we are a, uh, a society for everyone, so that we are a society that includes and values people with disability as,
0: as equal members of our society. And Henry, what's your perspective of this International Day of People with Disability?
2: It's very similar to the previous answer, I I think that the the main thing from my perspective is recognising how far we've come uh, in terms of participation, in terms of people's voices beginning to be heard in mainstream perspectives. Um, To me, that's very important. I think also there's a part of me that gets a little bit frustrated about the focus on what people can't do uh, when it comes to talking about disability. I think that, you know, every time the day rolls around, there's sort of a part of me that thinks there needs to be a little bit more of a conversation about the things which society can do to enable people to live their best lives. And that's, that's a complicated piece, but it's... It's a discussion that needs to be, to be had in terms of we talk about disability, we talk about people's impairments, but there needs to be more of a conversation piece about the enabling factors that people can quite easily have in place to enable them to, to live their best lives and participate more fully than, than perhaps is the case.
0: And I think you illustrate that so well, Henry, on a number of levels, of course, from your lived experience as someone who was born blind and with a slight hearing impairment, but you're a lawyer, you have run a marathon. Can you tell us about that and, and obviously your your determination really to to participate on that level?
2: Sure. Um, I've been really lucky in that I've grown up in a very, quite a big family and and had access to a lot of pretty incredible opportunities from the get-go, but it was always about participating to the fullest level that I could, not really in spite of uh, the barriers that I face as someone who's blind and, and hearing impaired, but, you know, just as, as part of who I am, essentially. So it, it's given me a drive, I think, to, to give things a go, Recently, that manifested itself in uh, in running a marathon. <laughs> so
0: incredible! Can you tell um, us about that? You raised money as well for uh, for charity, and
2: yeah, I did. I mean, it, it, it sort of it started with a simple idea of of um, I actually challenged myself with a friend. We had a few Reds <laughs> one Sunday afternoon, and and um, a, a friend of mine convinced me to do a half marathon. So I did the training for that and I should back up one one second and, you know, tell people how I did that because, you know, as someone who is blind, uh, running does not come naturally. Um, if, if I'm running solo, it often doesn't end well um, <laughs> in terms of crashing into things.
0: <laughs> so how so, do you logistically do that then, Henry?
2: So I have a guide. Uh, I have a guide where... We run together with a bit of uh, rope or in my case a little bit of a headband you know one of the stretchy headbands so mm. holding each end of it running side by side uh, moving our arms together and the guide is able to pull their arm up or down or to the side to the left to the right and the goal really is to get as in sync as possible in that in that sort of scenario.
0: Would take a bit of getting used to, I imagine, Henry.
2: Well, yeah, depending on who you, you're running with and, <laughs> and, you know, if there's a bit of a height difference and that sort of thing, you know, dif- different stride lengths and, you know, so many factors at play. But again, I, it's um, a really quite unique experience because, you know, yes, you're running and it's, it's it's good to get fit, but it also brings you into proximity with with some pretty amazing people. So, on one side, it's, it's about the running and getting fit and, you know, being able to get yourself to a level where you can do a half marathon or a marathon or whatever it is your goal is. But on the other is is the participation side where you're just, you're getting out, you're interacting with, with your guide and, and getting out in a way that, that wouldn't otherwise be facilitated if you're just cruising around by yourself. I also was lucky in having access to a treadmill, so that was... That was good as well.
0: And you weren't able to get to New York as your original plans?
2: No, I wasn't able to get to New York. So April, May came around last year, and it was becoming pretty obvious at that point that that New York was not going to happen as was originally intended. So I went out and bought myself a treadmill. I think it was the last one in the store. (laughs) And... For me, that was a godsend because you know obviously everyone were, were not getting out as, as they were once able to do and you know all pretty pretty cooped up and isolated. and um, you know the guiding opportunities't weren't, weren't as you know frequent as, as possible. So it enabled me to keep training and you know keep some semblance of a routine and, and goals, which you know being such a crazy year was absolutely essential for me just to to have that to focus on.
0: So you made your own marathon in Brisbane when you couldn't do the New York marathon?
2: I did. I did. We um, scoped out a 7K loop, essentially, um, around New Farm, Tenerife, New Set. So I was on the Brisbane River. And at the time that the New York marathon, uh, it was November, December. So... The temperature difference was was pretty huge mm-hmm. being in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. So the biggest challenge was the heat that essentially we, we got up at three, started running at 3.30 a.m. and um, got it done.
0: Fantastic, Henry. And I think this points on a broader level. I think what you touched on before about that incredible achievement to run a marathon and even watching the Paralympics earlier this year. This is all very inspiring, but this actually gets down to a more fundamental basic right, doesn't it, of participation in sport, that people with a disability have a right and should be supported to take part in sport, be part of their community.
2: Absolutely. Uh, I'm really, really quite passionate about it because I think that people, whether they have a disability or not, tend to sell themselves short a, a bit about what they what they think they can achieve. And I'm, I'm very wary of wanting to inspire people or anything like that because, you know, goals are goals and it doesn't matter what your goal is, whether it's running a marathon or just getting out. It's, it's about living your best life, essentially. And I believe that sport is, a, is an enormously important way for people to do that, and particularly people with additional barriers you know that are attributable to their disability. If those barriers are overcome, you know, if in my case through running with a guide, you then start to lift the bar and and go. You know what 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 it what what next? You know what what else can I do? So it's about finding what supports are going to facilitate living your best life, from my perspective.
0: So, Frances, does that really sum up for you, really, what part of this International Day of People with Disability is all about?
3: Yes, of course. You know, we're citizens. We're not separate to the rest of our community, the rest of our society. And we have every right to access forms of recreation. That's actually Article 30 of the CRPD, the right to access and participate in cultural life, recreation, leisure and sport. And I think recreation is a great word because those activities are part of recreating yourself, particularly, I think, in in the current context in which we're living. And Henry has noted that, you know, the last 18 months have been tough for everybody, but it's been particularly tough for people with disability as well. Uh, and we have just as much right to get out there and recreate ourselves, you know, whether it's via a physical activity. And, you know, if I was wearing a hat, Henry, I would take my hat off to you, but um, <laughs> running's not my thing. Um, if I'm running, then you would know there was something really wrong um, and you probably should run too. Um but my, my, my particular conditions prohibit me from running, so I'd probably just lay down and, and wait for it to happen. Um, but, you know, there's also there's art and there's music and there are all forms of cultural activities that people with disability yes. can and should have access to. And I think this is an interesting thing, Nance, that we've found, so we've we've been doing a bit of research around the impacts of the pandemic, primarily on on women with disability and mental health and wellbeing. But one of the things that came out fairly early on was the access that was suddenly available to people with disability to places online like museums and art galleries and theatres. So, you know, like the Louvre in France, um, you know, Frida Carlos house in Mexico City. Uh, suddenly all these interactive, um, art experiences were available to people who had pre- couldn't, couldn't go and see them. We forget that there are people in our community who are literally bedbound. Uh, and actually the internet is really important, uh, because it gives us access to the world. Uh, and I think that was one of the, one of the, the great things that has come out of the pandemic is that art, in all its forms should not be restricted to any one group but we all have a right to access art and be part of it so covid yes, had, had its
0: its its benefits um, but but also its challenges for people with a disability around well, access
3: absolutely absolutely but you know access to these extraordinary places which you know for many of us will never get there that was a silver lining, um, and there are other points too. So, yes, it's been a struggle. Yes, it's been a slog in a lot of ways, but, you know, there have been bright points too that I hope we keep. Mm. I hope we keep access to interactive art spaces. I hope, personally, we keep telehealth. That mm. has just made my life so much simpler. Mm. So yes,
0: and you mentioned the the CRPD, the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. This is a an area of overlap really with yourself and Eloise with your research. For people who haven't heard of this, Francis, could you summarise really why this is important? You know, sometimes I think we think these United Nations treaties are a bit lofty and don't really have much application to to our everyday life.
3: Look. The the wonderful thing about the CRPD is it is, at the moment, the only 21st century piece of human rights law that's been developed. Now, there is in development uh, uh, an international convention on um, ageing, but thus far the CRPD is the only one. It came from activists and DPOs, so that's Disabled Persons Organisations in Mexico, you know, and Mexico isn't a place that you you think of of being um, as an important human rights place. But at the end of the 1990s, there were some changes happening there, and the Mexican government felt that it was so important that they would take it to the world stage, and they used their embassies and high commissions to lobby the the world to come on board and take this to the UN and create an international tool. And this happened all in about four years. So the first thing that's important about it is. For the first time, people with disability have a human rights tool that articulates our rights very openly and clearly. They also specifically articulate points around women and children. The fact that it was driven by people with disability. The fact that it came from a country that is not really considered a human rights leader but really pushed it. And then in Australia, why is it important? we were really there at the forefront of it. We did the actual field research that developed the articles and we were the only country that took the question to the people, that is the people with disability, what do you want to see in this convention? How do you want it to change your life? We took those questions to people uh, and we gathered all those answers we took them back to New York and we hashed it out with our colleagues in New Zealand and Mexico and we managed to get it on the table and up by 2004 and of course uh, we were ratified and signed up by 2008 and there were 82 signatories in 2008. It was one of the first and thus far the only highest number of signatories uh, on a ratification. So it that's that's the process of the of, of the CRPD. It's also has a very specific agenda. So I said, you know, that it's the first and thus far only human rights tool of the twenty first century. And it really is taking human rights into the next level, it's the next phase, and that's called transformative equality. The CRPD has a very specific agenda. For social change. It is, it's is—it's outlined. In it. It's very, very clear. So it's not simply about reasserting our rights or about pointing out to governments and states where our rights have been breached. It's about actively changing systems. And that's what we're about today. And that's what disability advocates in Australia and worldwide, it's about changing the systems. So it's really important. It also underpins every single piece of disability policy uh, and legislation at every level of government in Australia. So it is the ducks nuts.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so a decade on, or just over a decade on from from that being fully ratified, uh, Eloise, mm. how are we going with actually applying the CRPD to the Australian environment? We were so as Francis explained, such a pivotal part of actually creating it. What are we finding on the ground? I'll
1: provide some views from specifically from one of the research projects that I'm working on. And yes, it is critical that we assess how the CRPD is being implemented in Australia. We are a signatory to the CRPD and we have obligations to meet the goals that we've signed up to. And one of the projects that I'm working on at uh, Griffith University is called Adjudicating Rights for a Sustainable National Disability Insurance Scheme. Now, that's led by Professor Michelle Foster, along with Associate Professor Kylie Burns and Professor Susan Harris-Rimmer. And the essence of that project is about the decision-making processes and the administrative processes to ensure that the rights of people with disability that we agreed to when we became signatories of the CRPD are met within the National Disability Insurance Scheme, which is more commonly called the NDIS. Now, following Australia um, becoming a signatory to the CRPD, there was a national disability strategy developed which sought to embed the CRPD, into policy in Australia. So to give people with disability rights to
0: legislate them. So that was around the same time as the NDIS was coming in, is it? Or was there some overlap there? So the National Disability Strategy
1: was from 2010 to 2020 and they're currently uh, redoing that and apparently renaming it Australia's disability strategy. Mm-hmm. But following the CRPD, and I think the Senate might have referred it to the Australian, to, to or the Australian Parliament referred it to see how we would embed and implement the CRPD into Australia's policy environment. And uh, around 2009, there were many reports from different agencies outlining the experiences of people with disability and families in Australia within the current arrangements for supports for people with disability. And uh, there was the National Disability Strategy, which I think was around 2010. Frances, is that right?
3: Yes, there's, 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 a, there's a range of things that went on, um, of course, because we're a, a federated system. So mm. Um, it, it was also a matter of getting all the states and territories on board too. So th- this was a COAG process. Yes,
1: you're right. Yeah. Um, COAG in 2009.
3: Yeah, this was a COAG. Mm. yeah, a COAG process. And um, the, the original concept for the NDIS actually came out of, uh, what was it, Kevin Rudd's 2020 vision. Uh, Bruce yes. Bonahardi brought that to the yeah. table. Yeah, yeah. And, and then after we ratified, I think this was under the Gillard government, uh, this is when we started to get some more articulation around the CRPD in, um, in on a federal level, but also it disseminating out through um, states and territories, and you know that's been really difficult, yeah. really really difficult because because we have a federated system, you know, um, and we are here in Queensland, and we did have a former Attorney General here who did say that Queensland was a sovereign state, so. Getting Queensland on board with the concept of international law being relevant in Queensland has been a bit of a, bit of a challenge. Mm. But I, I can say that over the last five years, we've made some really strong inroads here. And now the CRPD is quoted in, in, uh, in legislation and policy here in Queensland. But, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Nance, there is within Australia, uh, uh, it's not just a hesitation, it's also almost a bristling about being told what to do. From an external international body, I think that's cultural. I think it's more recent uh, than anything else because, of course, Australia was quite heavily involved in the original charter of human rights post mm. World War II. So it's been a it's been a, a complicated process. Has it been um, effective thus far? <laughs> Look, I'm hard because I'm on the coalface of it. Mm. But if you look at it, we did have the National Disability Strategy. We did um, get the NDIS out of that, and that, of course, sits underneath the National Disability Strategy. Um, and without the CRPD being signatory to it, we wouldn't have had that. And we wouldn't have our states and territories and federal governments and um, talking to each other about disability like they do now. You know, It wouldn't be a topic of conversation in the conversation, and it wouldn't be a a topic of conversation on, on, you know, across the AFR or any of the other commercial uh, news agencies where previously the narrative around disability has has been about um, either inspiration porn, Mm. you know, isn't she wonderful, she got up and walked, or aren't they a burden um, Mm. to us? Mm. So it has somewhat changed the conversation, I think. Mm.
1: My perspective comes from research around the NDIS. And the the NDIS, you know, it was rolled out from 2013, but Queensland didn't really see it until two thousand. start of it, until 2018. But yes, it it has brought some positives um, to the lives of people with disability and their families. Um, um, However, the research that I'm involved in is still looking at What's the gap between the promise from the, you know, from being signatory to the CRPD, from upholding the rights of people with disability and extending those rights, and what is the lived experience of people accessing and gaining supports through the NDIS? And, and at the moment, the gap, you know, between the kind of uh, intentions and design of the scheme, and the implementation of the scheme, there would appear to be a quite a significant gap in um, implementing the CRPD or, or having, you know, meeting people's rights through that, that particular avenue.
0: And I think Henry touched on this before mm. when he was talking about, and Francis, you've mentioned this too, that driving that conversation, isn't it, about that it's not about your deficits um, sometimes I, I look at the NDIA and the the NDIS, the way it was set up. Are we getting away from that and the focus on what people can do and should be able to do? And seem to be going back to mm. this negative conversation of what people's deficits are. Mm. Henry, is that what you're finding?
2: Definitely. And, you know, I, I think the biggest challenge with it, and this is not to take away from... Uh, good work it's doing uh, and the many people who it is working for, but I think it's it's very important to acknowledge that it's not uh, anywhere near perfect. Mm. I have a law background and consider myself to be pretty independent and pretty self-sufficient in terms of navigating the system, so if I find it hard to navigate the system, it would lead me to reasonably conclude that it would be infinitely more challenging for someone to navigate the system who perhaps doesn't have the support and, you know, background that I've got to That's
0: right. to navigate
2: the system. When so, you're a
0: lawyer. <laughs> yeah.
2: It's it can be very challenging if you don't if you know if you don't self advocate, if you don't have appropriate levels of support to you know get the reports that are necessary to to tick the boxes or indeed if you don't fit those neat little boxes that that um you know make things challenging for you to explain what what the impacts of your particular situation are you can not be supported to the degree that that people who do have that support you know, find themselves.
0: I think, particularly for people with intellectual disabilities, it's proven to be quite um, a hurdle to overcome if they don't have that support.
2: Yeah, well, I think it' not just intellectual disabilities, but but you know, those disabilities that aren't. I have physical disabilities in terms of um, the lack of sight. It's it's pretty black and white there, if I can excuse that language. <laughs> But if, if someone's disability changes over time, it, it needs to account for the many and varied scales of disability that are out there. And perhaps it doesn't work as well as it could or should for those disabilities, those impairments that, that can be affected by environmental factors or, you know, a, a variable. It's challenging to explain the impact if the impact is hard to quantify, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. And is, is it, are you finding in your research, Eloise, that is this a gap that can be breached, I suppose, that that balance between the, we hear a lot of government rhetoric about it being sustainable. Can we get that balance with that and the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities and trying to get that focus on what people can do? is. The
1: NDIS and the rhetoric around it shifting from, you know, the intention of more of a, a social model of disability backwards um, towards more of the deficit model of disability, and I, I think we are seeing that in, well, in our research at least. And in terms of the rhetoric around sustainability, we have, I think, especially over the last few years as well, seen an increase in rhetoric around financial sustainability of the scheme. Now, sustainability itself of the scheme, I don't think is limited to financial sustainability. Sustainability, you know, it's broader. It's, it includes social sustainability and sustainability not just of the outputs in terms of you know, the money coming out of the scheme, but the, and if we're talking in economic perspectives, the NDS, a National Disability Services recently did also release a report where they looked at, you know, what are the actual benefits to society in terms of participation, in terms of community inclusion and access and, yes, economic benefits of the NDIS, not just as we do here in the rhetoric, you know, the big threats to, you know, how much the NDIS is spending and it not being a limitless resource. Well, yes, that's true but you know i think and this report especially and other evidence shows you know the, the real benefits of the spending of the ndis the benefits that come back into society of having people more included of having people participating and the subsequent benefits of that too the economic aspects of society.
0: And that inclusion can look in very many ways, can't it, Francis? I'd think of even my own personal experience if I mention that. My brother has an intellectual disability. He doesn't really leave the house much, uh, but he employs four people mm. through mm-hmm. the NDIS. And I often tell people I think of him as small business Ashley. You know, he's not Ashley the drain on society mm-hmm. who is being funded. No. You know, those four people love and being, love being with him and he adds so much value to their lives. Mm. Uh, Francis, is that something? I know you recently spoke at the Disability Royal Commission very strongly about
3: this as well. Yes, yes. I think it's a, a – when the NDIS was, was proposed, I, I do know that, um, you know, many people were, were really, really looking forward to having, you know, we've got all the catchphrases, haven't we? Choice and control, will and preference. And, you know <laughs> – for people who have always had decisions made for them, the idea of being able to say, you know, and maybe with support, oh, look, I would like this person to work with me, but not that person. I would like this agency to work with me, but not that agency. This is the first time for very, very many people that they've actually had autonomy and a say. And I think people forget that. Yeah. Um, or rather, I think systems forget that. And politicians forget that. And so when they're uh, slightly so, yeah. wound back,
0: um, rightly people do bristle, don't they? And go, hang on.
3: Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. There's pushback and they shouldn't be surprised because, you know, good grief. A taste of freedom and who's going to get up? Why be pushed into a persona and, and uh, or a, you know, a digital framework mm. that makes choices for you? Why? That's not humanity. That's not citizenship. That's just bureaucratic convenience. Mm. And it seems that people with disability, old age pensioners, people on the disability a support pension, you know we're the ones who are being tested for this digital agenda because see- it it perhaps seemingly is easier and, and more palatable to do it on people who appear to be a drain on the system. But you know what? we're not a drain. Mm-hmm. We are far from a drain. Because every penny or rather cent that we spend, it circulates around. It goes back into the economy. We we're, we're not corporations, offshore corporations, taking the job keeper and pulling the money overseas. You know, we're not rich individuals making use of tax loopholes and sending money overseas. No, no. Our money stays in the country.
2: You know, we are geographically equitable. Henry I might just add to that as well. I mean quite apart from from you know the money circulating around and essentially making potentially government job numbers looking a lot better than they otherwise might and all that sort of thing, my case, for example, it's enabling me to be more productive and therefore a better contributor to to society through my work and all the rest of it so it, it's a very simple Lens to look at the NDIs as a as as, as a drain. I, I don't think it takes into account the integrated nature of the fact that we're all interlinked by the economy that we we live and work in. So, the NDIs has created a marketplace where got much more active participation. The services that we choose and the goods that we choose that enable us to 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 do what we need to do and what we want to do, more importantly. Um, and that's creating a much greater sense of autonomy and independence that we, well, speaking from my perspective at least, um, previously had. Um, so it's raising the bar for people, for people's expectations, both of themselves and um, of each other, I think, which I think can only be a good thing. You know, there, there, are, there are problems, yes, but the, the the benefits of having a more engaged, more inclusive, more active group within society far outweighs the talk about costs. Um, and of course it needs to be sustainable, but it, it needs to be balanced with an acknowledgement that we are, seeing a lot of more benefits both tangible and intangible.
0: What important research you're doing Eloise to try and get to the nut of that <laughs> and actually figure out how that actually works. Yeah and to, and to pick
1: up on Henry's point as well of the parts that this project wants to contribute to is this wider public discourse about the NDIS and about how rights are embedded into the NDIS and this sustained visibility of discussions around the NDIS, around how the scheme works and around how it should work as a policy researcher and working alongside uh, others in my team that are policy researchers and legal researchers. You know, one of the outcomes we want from this research is we want to have policy influence. We, We hope through this, you know, research to offer ways to improve policy, policy instruments and tools to make the system fairer and to ensure that decisions made within the NDIS and about the NDIS are fair, that they're transparent, that they're evidence-based and, crucially, that they're rights-promoting. Because the NDIS, you know, it came, you know, it came a decade later but also, but it came from agreeing that the CRPD and the rights within the CRPD are critical to our society.
0: Francis. it made me think, what what can we do, I suppose, for people who are listening and think, okay, so what can I do to make a more inclusive society? Uh, What are some practical things that we can do to implement the CRPD really in our own lives, you know, to actually try and make a more participatory society for people with a disability?
3: Oh, good question. So I said earlier that the CRPD does have a a particular agenda for social change, and that social change is transformative equality, which is about system change. But how do you do that on a local level, on a neighbourhood level? Well, the human rights model of disability says that disability is simply part of the human condition or as Henry said at the very beginning, it is part of who I am. You know, when we start to examine our, our human experience, quite frankly, who isn't disabled? You know, if we're really honest, the, the, the world and its structures is based on the concept of the ideal citizen who is white aged between 18 and 65, fully employed, fully educated, always rational male. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, if, well, Henry, you'd know, this is what the legal system is. What would a reasonable person do? This is what we think, you know, when we when we go to offer evidence and the reasonable person is the ideal citizen. Well, hello, I have never met that person, ever. I'm certainly not that person. Mm. I'm a woman to begin with. Um so it's part of the human condition, which is broad, it's varied and it's intersectional. So you know what, with your neighbours at a community level, have a think about your language. Mm. I really think that's where it, you know, language is so important. Thinking about speaking inclusively instead of othering, you know, I think that's where it starts and it's like a ripple effect. Once you start thinking about the words that you're using and how you're speaking to people, It makes a huge difference. I was only just thinking the other day, Nance, when I was working in a different capacity here in Queensland with young people with intellectual disability and we were out sailing, you you know, the the fabulous sailing program that we have here in Australia. I was out there uh, in a boat uh, with this young fella and one of the support people for the volunteer sailing program said, it's just wonderful, isn't it, that they can do this? But really, shouldn't they have a sign or something should they wear a label that says they're disabled now this this wasn't that long ago Mm -hmm. how othering how extraordinary I mean do I have a label on my forehead that says I am a woman no (laughs) why would why would anyone think that that's appropriate so yeah start with your language I think and let's and let's work together around transforming the
2: systems. Couldn't agree more.
0: (laughs) Language is powerful, is it, Henry?
2: I heard a quote which I love and I I keep coming back to it when I think about disability and it's, it's this. There are two kinds of people in this world, those with disabilities and those who haven't figured out what their disability is yet. And... For me, that illustrates the point that each and every one of us will be experiencing a disability of some sort at some point. You know, whether it's we're born and and, and reliant on, on parents and wiping bottoms and all that sort of thing, or, or by our age, once once that gets to a certain point. You know, so to put a label is misleading because... You know, each and every one of us, disability frames the opposite of that as non-disabled, which is rubbish because none of us are perfect Mm -hmm. and never will be. So So I, I think from my perspective, I think people can start to think more empathetically about the challenges that other people face uh, or the barriers that are in place at that at, at a particular point in time and stop thinking of of disability versus able-bodied would be a really useful start
0: get away from that uh, scenario we're all in this together to a degree
3: <laughs> goodness absolutely um I have invisible disabilities per se born vision impaired and have acquired some I'm ha- hard of hearing but my primary disability uh, relates to having uh, contracted measles, rubella and chicken pox when I was eight, and the measles had a profound impact on me and my body, which has resulted in um, various autoimmune conditions, lifelong autoimmune conditions. Now, I'm not the only one who has experienced things like this. Yeah. There's got to be thousands of us mm. that, that we just simply don't necessarily identify that that's the disability. Until, Henry, of course, you know, someone says, why don't you run a marathon? And I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> the body's dead. The body's well, dead. I, I
2: didn't say I was going to no. do it again.
0: <laughs> it, it was
2: not a best uh, life choice I've ever made to run it in summer. So. Ticked that one off.
0: <laughs> well, thank you all for joining us, Eloise, Henry, Francis. Do you have a, any closing remarks of uh, for International Day for People with
2: Disability? nothing about us without us. I think that sums it up pretty mm-hmm. well.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Eloise, Henry and Francis on The Gender Card.
3: Thank you very Thanks, much. Thanks, Nance. So
0: and that's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced for the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on SoundCloud. Speak to you again soon.